Well, I can't tell you how excited I am to be here, and not just because it's uh, Florida and it's still cold in Maryland. Um, I've enjoyed your weather down here. You can, you can bring me back any winter you want to have me come. And it's nice to be introduced as Bethany's dad. That really makes me proud as a dad. Uh, <laughs> but maybe other reasons why I was brought down is I have spent uh, in my career 20 years in inner city urban ministry um, and then an additional 18 years in more uh, suburban rural ministry. So I've been on both sides of the equation. I've been where, where people have, have needed the help and I've been in the places where people could offer the help. And so the question that you're asking is, is an important one. And I hope we can talk about it some. Um, let me check my notes here. Uh, I, I, hopefully we can get it all done. I did bring some books that uh, I, I would share with you. This is Toxic Charity, written by Bob Lupton. He's a friend of mine. I worked with him in Atlanta for, uh, for nine years. Uh, we were part of the same small church there. I worked for his organization for a little while. Uh, it's a great book on, on talking about whether helping hurts or not. He calls it, when it doesn't help, toxic charity. Uh, another one that's in the same vein is when helping hurts, uh, how to alleviate poverty without hurting the poor and yourself by Steve Colbert and Brian uh, Fickert. Another one I came across just this past summer is Loving Our Neighbor. This is by Beth uh, 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 Lindsay Templeton. She's a Presbyterian pastor and used to do poverty seminars, uh, teaching people about poverty, and uh, excellent book. She, she gets into some of the really how do you help uh, in the various ways of helping that's out there that we'll be talking about in just a moment. And then Bethany showed me this book, Deep Justice in a Broken World, Helping Your Kids Serve Others and Right the Wrongs Around Them by Chap Clark and Kara Powell. Uh, I've only read a little bit of this, but what I read was very good. You should have received a handout when you came in called the uh, Oath of Compassionate Service. We got that to you first because I'm not talking about it till near the end, and if I run out of time, you have a copy of it. Uh, I also have a handout that's available if you want it afterwards. This is the monthly newsletter that Bob Lupton writes. And uh, this particular month, this one just came uh, like two weeks ago. This particular one speaks to what we're talking about today. So I've given you a copy of that. And then a, a, more, a deeper bibliography of, of other books that talk about uh, uh, helping people and helping the poor. And also it has some web pages where, where you can go and uh, check out other things that are being done. But I want to begin reading a couple of uh, three passages of scripture. From 1 John 3, chapter 17. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? From James chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. 
if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and, you, you, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is, what, what good is that? Uh, what, is, what is the good of that? So faith by itself has no works, is dead. And then Jesus told this parable in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats at the left, then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, it, when was it that we saw you hungry or, and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when, it was, and when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You are accursed. Depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Reading these verses... I would say we have no choice but to be helping the poor, helping those who are in need. And you might accuse me of, uh, of works righteousness, but believe me, I am very much a man of grace. I believe in grace. I preach grace. But because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way God has forgiven us our sins and made us his, his children, his people. He has called us to live out that faith in the world. And the way we do this is by taking care of helping the poor. It's in our DNA. And it can be traced back to the very beginning of the New Testament church. In that book of When Helping Hurts, they, talk, they speak of sociologist Rodney Stark, who Dr documents that the early church's engagement with suffering people was critical to its explosive growth. Listen to this. <clears throat> Cities in the Roman Empire were characterized by poor sanitation, contaminated water, high population densities, open sewers, filthy streets, unbelievable stench, rampant crime, 
collapsing buildings and frequent illnesses and plagues. Life expectancy was less than 30 years and probably substantially less. The only way for cities to avoid complete depopulation for mortality was for, them to, for there to be a constant influx of immigrants, a very fluid situation that contributed to urban chaos, deviant behavior, and social instability. Rather than fleeing these urban cesspools, the urban church found its niche there. Stark explains that the early or that the Christian concept of self-sacrificial love of others emanating from God's love for them was a revolutionary concept to the pagan mind which viewed the extension of mercy as an emotional act to be avoided by rational people. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urban problems. The cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered immediately basis uh, for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violence and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Does that describe the church today? Are we making that kind of impact? The history of the Christian church has been that it has gone into those places where there was suffering and need, and they provided help and services. Now, early in the 20th century, there was a division within the Christian church in, um, in America and Europe. It was a division between liberals and fundamentals, fundamentalists. And it, 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 it came about from several different things. Uh, science versus the Bible. This was the time when evolution was going, coming about and people were whether you believed in evolution or in a seven-day creation. There was also the, the biblical criticisms where, where it was being debated and discussed uh, who actually wrote the Bible, the various books, when they were written, and uh, making all sorts of comments on that, decisions on that. But one of the big reasons for the division was the liberals embraced this idea of social justice and social involvement in activities, helping the poor, uh, working for justice for all. And, um, and they, they, they did that and did not emphasize with it the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They kind of left that out. And the fundamentalists, in response to this, they fully embraced and emphasized evangelism as the most important thing. And if, you, if you're not saving the person's soul, well, what good have you done them? And they did it at, with the exclusion of the social action and the justice. They didn't, they didn't want any part of that. And so this went on for quite a while. And 
it's been toward the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century that we're seeing that both sides are moving more toward the middle, where, yes, the personal relationship with, with Jesus Christ is important, but so is the social action, the justice issues, helping the poor, helping the least of these in our society. And so this is, this is good, this coming together. But it hasn't gotten there fully yet. When I was in seminary in the late 70s, a, uh, one, the mission professor at my seminary said, I, I remember being in class when he said this, that the missionary's job is to do evangelism. It is to bring people to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and, and social ministry, don't, don't mess with that, only if you, maybe you have enough time. But that priority's got to be evangelism. But then I remember a friend of mine in the, uh, in the inner city, he was talking to a man from the suburbs, this is in the Chicago area, and he asked the man, or, or the man was saying to my friend, who was an urban pastor, why do you spend so much time talking about social issues? Shouldn't you be spending more time talking about spiritual issues? And my friend asked him, where, what, where, where do you live? And why do you live there? And the man said, well, I live in this such and such a community. And I'm there because it's a, got good housing. Uh, it's safe. There's no crime. There's good schools for our kids. There's uh, available transportation. There's good uh, health care right around, doctors in the hospital. And, uh, and my friend said, wait a minute. All those are social issues. You chose where you live because of these social issues. Don't you think the people living in the inner city deserve as much? Now, I grew up more in that fundamentalist camp. You know, you got you to get people to pray the prayer to invite Jesus into their lives. And when that happens, everything's going to start becoming hunky-dory and good and wonderful. One summer during my college career, I ended up in Houston, Texas, not by choice, but uh, Holy Spirit, but that's for another time, another story. But I ended up in this Christian drug rehab program helping out there. And I was as naive and innocent a person as you could have ever wanted to see. And they told me when I got there, you better beware of these drug addicts because they're the biggest con artists around. I discovered that summer that just because somebody invites Jesus into their lives, their problems don't necessarily go away. And there were no real easy answers. And my very black and white Christianity all of a sudden started having all kinds of gray introduced. And when I went to seminary, I didn't want to be a pastor. Gosh, no, I didn't want to be a pastor. Last thing I wanted to be. I wanted to work with either troubled youth or drug addicts. And I made a very faulty assumption. I thought they were all found in the inner city. If I'd known they were in the suburbs where my seminary was located, who knows where I'd be now and what I'd be doing. 
But I signed up for a year-long inner-city training program. And again, all kinds of gray were put into my, my theology uh, of how do we really help people? And are we doing things that hurt folks? Now, Bob Lupton in this book, Toxic Charity, talks about how Christians in America, and Americans in general, are the most generous people you'd ever want to encounter. They give more money, more time, and more effort than any other people in the whole world. But the problem is, they don't always give smartly. They don't always give to things that really help, but often they give to things that actually hurt keep people locked into poverty instead of getting them out of poverty. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. How many of you have encountered the beggar on the street corner with a sign, we'll work for food, although they don't really believe that. Uh, they don't want you to believe that. They want to just give you to give them food. Or it says, uh, a homeless vet, uh, please help, God bless you or whatever the, the, they have on their little sign, they're asking for money. You've seen them, right? You've probably even given to them sometimes. Feel sorry for them. The question is, are you helping them? And my guess is you have no idea whether what you did helped or hurt. Was the person really truthful that they needed the help? But they're there every day, week after week after week, same people. Are you really helping them? Or are they feeding an addiction? You give them that money and they're going out and they're buying the drugs or they're buying the alcohol. And then you hear stories of some of them. They collect two or three or more hundred dollars a day. They walk around the corner, they get in their nice automobile and they drive home. We don't want to be conned. We want to be good stewards of what we give. And yet we have all these people on the street corners begging. Are we helping or are we hurting? Then there's the, the people that call the churches asking for help. You know, I, my, I'm about to be evicted. I need help with my rent. Or they're about to cut off my water or my electricity uh, you know, and you hear these sob stories, people wanting help. And how do you respond uh, to, to, to listen to everyone's story? You, you, you really want to be able to be a good steward of the money God has given us and given to the church. So you should check out their story. Is it actually true? But that takes a lot of time. And do you want your pastor, who usually is the one that ends up with these calls, trying to figure out, is the story accurate or not? If it is, I do want to help, but I'm not going to give the money to the person, that person. I'm going to pay their electric bill. Or I'm going to send a check to their rent for their rent. Joe talked about this on Sunday. Had a person that came through here, was a drug addict, if I understand correctly. He was high when he came. And I think Trent and Bill talked with them and worked with them. And eventually, 
bought him a, uh, a bus ticket back to Pennsylvania because he said, if I can get home, I, can get my, I, I think I can get my life straight. Question, it, did you help or did you hurt? I bet you don't know. Do you know? Have you contacted the man since he's been gone? Have no answer. We like to think that we helped. I hope that it helped. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist, and I'm, uh, I'm one that, that, that believes the stories. So I have to be careful. Uh, the, the person on the street, if I ever give to them, I give it from a sincere heart of wanting to help and not hurt, but knowing that I, they may be conning me. But if they are, that's on them, not on me, because I'm giving it with the right motive. But then again, I rarely, if ever, give to people on the street. A little bit different in the churches. Sometimes we help. Most of the time we don't, we, primarily because we don't have the money. But also we don't have the time to check it out. And it's easier to just either give them the money so they're out of my hair or say we have no money and we can't help you get them out of, the hair, out of my hair. And what's right? There's no easy answer on that. Then there are the mission trips. God bless the mission trips. It's a billion-dollar industry in our country. These mission trips to inner cities or rural areas or to other countries. We spend so much money on this. And are we getting the bang for our buck for it? I would suggest, really, for the amount of money that's being spent, it's producing very little. We, we like to say, well, it's, uh, it's exposing us to, to need that's in the world. And yes, indeed, it will. If you've not, never been exposed to poverty, especially third world poverty, uh, you need to be exposed to it. It, 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 is, it, 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 it will affect you. But statistics show, studies show that most people don't have a life-changing experience from these mission trips. They enjoy them. We tend to make them into a mission slash vacation. But often we don't accomplish very much. We go into these places and we do the work for free that somebody that lives there could be hired to do. That would help the people that are there actually in that community. And we don't really set up good relationships with those that we work with. Maybe we have as a church a place that we go to every year. And so there's some consistency and there's some building relationship. But that's usually the exception and not the rule. Several years ago I went to Haiti. Haiti's the poorest country in this hemisphere. It breaks your heart to go there. You, get, you arrive at the airport and you have just, uh, I don't know how many, 50, 50 young men all, all around there. They're trying to help you put your baggage in the van or on top of the van or, or whatever so that you might give them a tip. They're desperate for work. But we go in there, 
We pour billions of dollars into the country, and we go in there and we do the work for nothing that somebody could be hired to do. Mission trip may spend $10,000, $20,000 to go somewhere. Think of what that money could do to a local economy where the people are living off a dollar or two dollars a day. Bethany and I went a few years ago to Malawi. And uh, we went to a little village that we were going, where, where we were building a school. Now, we had for my church a couple that had been missionaries there for two years. So they knew the people. They, we all knew about this, whether helping hurts or not. So we had that in our minds. And we sent the money over so the school could be built. And then 10 of us from the church flew over there for the dedication. This is what we got when we got there. Big celebration. And one of the chiefs says, we love the school. We're going to put it to good use. But we need a teacher's house. We can't use the school. They won't provide a teacher unless we have a teacher's house. Nobody told us about that. Then, they, then he went on and said, we want you to come in and help us to dig some wells. We want you to come in and help us to run electrical lines so we can have electricity. And on and on he went on all these things they wanted us to do. We didn't have that kind of money. We tapped out building the, the school building. We didn't have any money to do a, a teacher's house. So I told them, I said, you have God-sized dreams. But only God can accomplish them. We ended up, the one thing that I think maybe was the saving grace of it all was that we came back and we provided scholarships for some of the orphans to go to uh, secondary school. But even that didn't work out very well because some of them didn't bother going to school. Like some of the girls that went dropped out because they had to get married. There was, it was extremely hard to communicate with the folks there. And eventually just all shut down. Did we help or did we hurt? I think it's a mixed bag. I think we did a little bit of both. And that's often how things work. Let me give you a progression of, um, of what often happens. Um, when you start helping people in need. And this is in Lupton's book. Give once and you elicit appreciation. Give twice, you create anticipation. Give three times and you create expectation. Give four times and it becomes entitlement. And give five times, you've established dependency. Is that helping or hurting? And while one-way giving appears to be like the Christian thing to do, it can undermine the very relationship the helper is attempting to build. 
to the extent that the poor are enabled that the, to the extent that the poor are enabled to participate in the systems intended to help them, that's where their self-worth is enhanced. The progression we often have as givers, we expect people to appreciate what we're doing for them. We expect people to use what we give them for the right reasons. If we give you food, we don't expect you to go out and sell the food and buy drugs. We don't want people abusing the rules. You can come once a month. Don't come any more than that. We want people to come to church. And we often question why we're doing this work if they don't ever come. And then we want to be able to do this helping work at our convenience. When I'm free, when I've got the time, I'll, I'll, I'll help. And all this is creating a very unhealthy relationship. And, um, hold on, I'm losing my place here. Often we, we miss what the poor have to offer us. We, we create this one-way uh, system where we, the givers, are up here. We control what happens. And we keep those that are receiving it down here. So there's always this unequal relationship. And to overcome that, you have to create an equal relationship where both parties are contributing to the, uh, to the situation. And if you read the letter um, from Bob Lupton that, that is for the handout you can have afterwards, he talks about that in this letter. We have to learn how to create this equal relationship, recognizing that the poor have something to offer us. And if you've ever been to a third world country and went to one of their worship services, you, you'll see the joy and the passion that they have for worshiping God. Far more than, than often what we see in our churches. You see a trust that they have to have to survive. They have to trust God in order to survive and live. Something I noticed in living in the inner city that the poor are often very generous. I never, in my years of living in the inner city, never invited someone I knew that had just been evicted or that was homeless to come stay in my house. But I know people that were living in those communities that did do that. They would care for somebody that was homeless and on the street because they knew it might be them next. They'd share information on where you can get things. The poor are quite resourceful. We don't always know that. They know how to work the system. They know who's giving out food when and who gives out help uh, assistance for, for rent and utility payments, and they, they make the rounds. They know these things. We have much we can learn from the poor, but we'll never learn it 
when the relationships are like this. Let me uh, talk about ways of helping that don't hurt. There are four, I would say, four categories of helping. You've heard the saying, teach a man, or give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach him how to fish, and he eats for a lifetime. Well, the four categories I want to have, and I'm going to add to that story. Emergency help. Rebuilding or redeveloping, or, uh, or as Bob Lepton often calls it, uh, uh, beautiful, uh, betterment. Betterment, he calls it betterment. That's what happens when we often go to these uh, uh, mission trips. We're not really changing things. We're just making things a little bit better. But the betterment. And then there's community development. And then there's advocacy. So, emergency help. That's giving a person a fish. And they eat for a day. The rebuilding of someone's life. That's when you teach them to fish. But this takes a lot more work. <coughs> there's, there's more to teaching a person to fish than just... Uh, Putting a worm on a hook and throwing it in the water. You need, you, first off, you need the fishing pole. You need the bait. You need the fishing license. Perhaps you need the boat. You need access to the lake. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are there. And it involves, if you're really going to teach them, it involves creating a relationship. So you have emergency help. You have the rebuilding. Then there's the community development. Here is where you give the person a stake in the pond itself, where they have some ownership. And here we're moving beyond just the individual, and we're starting to move to the community. How do we help communities move out of poverty? And this takes on a whole different nature for a church that wants to help because a church can't do this by themselves. You can only do this in partnership. And when you're doing it, the ones that are most affected, the ones that are living within the community, they have to be the ones that are in control of making the decisions. They don't need some big old uh, white rich church coming in and telling them, what they need. The community knows what it needs. They probably know the best answer to fix that than those that are trying to come in and do it from the outside. So this is community development, owning a piece of the pond. But even that's not enough because sometimes the government will put regulations on what you can do and the pond and all of that. And so you have to have advocacy where you have people that go and speak up against the powers to be when they are adversely affecting you. So let me give some more examples of this. How am I doing? All right. Um, emergency help. Right along the Missouri River. I haven't watched the news much this week, so I don't know what's going on this week. But last week, you know, they were getting flooded out. Nebraska. That's a time for emergency help. People need water and food and shelter and even being rescued. That's all emergency help. It's, you got to get in there. You got to do it. And that's followed by what comes next, 
which is the rebuilding. I led mission trips uh, beginning of one year after Katrina in New Orleans. I went four years in a row uh, rebuilding homes. And uh, this is that stage. I remember going in that first year and, and seeing the destruction. And this has been a year after the storm and thinking, I'd never seen such destruction in all my years in the inner city. And there it was. We went back the next year, and we had some people that hadn't gone with us the first year. They couldn't believe how bad it looked. Those of us who'd gone the first year were thinking, wow, look how much they've improved. <laughs> and this was the case all four years. But at some point, you move beyond the rebuilding and you have to go into the community development. And I believe that's probably where New Orleans is now. I haven't been there for, for a long time now, probably eight years now. So I don't know what's going on now. But that, now you need to be getting into the, uh, the community development. How do the neighborhoods take care of themselves? How do they find the good schools or create the good schools in their community? How do they handle the, uh, the crime situation? Uh, all these other issues that come up. How do they deal with these? That's the community development. And again, churches can go in and help, and they should go in and help, but it's got to be in partnership. Can't go in thinking, I'm, I'm going to save you. We don't come in as saviors. Then comes the, the community development. Bob Lupton has uh, done this in six different communities in the Atlanta area where they've gone in and they've created mixed housing, mixed income housing. And they, uh, they build houses very similar to the way Habitat does, where it's built primarily by volunteers and the people that are going to own the house work at the house. And they also um, um, put in the volunteer hours there. And then they pay for the house. And so... They have a stake in the community. And he's done this six different places. They also, they've worked on getting charter schools in some of these places. They've worked on finding uh, businesses to move in. Uh, instead of uh, giving out clothing in a clothes closet, they, uh, they have a used clothing store. Instead of having food pantries where they give out food, they created food co-ops where people join the co-op and uh, they, the food, they, they get the food from the, uh, the food bank, the Atlanta Food Bank, and they're able to give out bags according to family sizes. And, uh, and the people are running it themselves. And from that, they've, uh, there was one place in particular that had a, um, uh, a food kitchen, a, a soup kitchen, so, and... Uh, I think this is in the letter or that Bob wrote that talks about this. If it is, I don't want to spend time talking about it. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. Yes, it's in there, so I'm not going to tell you that story. Uh, <laughs> you can read it. It's a great story uh, where, where they, instead of these people coming in and cooking for them, they had some folks that could cook for themselves. 
and they started charging them instead of giving it away free, and the people started expecting a higher quality food, and those that, that were actually went there and worked there or, or went there for the food and were paying for it now had some expertise in cooking, and they started cooking good food, and it took off. Uh, so there's that. Then there's the idea of uh, advocacy. One of my professors from that urban program I was in, in seminary, told the story of uh, going to housing court in Chicago. And he sat there all day, and the judge ruled every time for the slum landlord. Every time. And the, my friend, my professor, got up at, toward the end of the day, and he said, excuse me, Your Honor, I've been here all day, and I've watched you rule for these landlords every time. Where is the justice? And the judge said, Reverend, this is a court of law. If you want justice, change the law. Sometimes we have to be advocates to change the law. Oh, crud. Let me close with this. The Oath of uh, Compassionate Service. It's from Bob Lupton's book. Oh! <laughs> Never mind. Don't look at that yet. I got some more things to tell you. Advocacy. Another way of doing advocacy is community organizing. And I didn't bring this book with me, but it's on the bibliography of, um, what's the name of the book, by Bob Lithicum, uh, Empowering the Poor, Community Organizing Among the Cities, Ragtag and Bobtail. Good book on how do you do community organizing where you bring uh, the community together to work on its own behalf. So, all right, let me find myself here. Ah, some examples of where helping does not hurt. Three, three examples. Bob Lupton tells the story, and I remember this one because I lived in the neighborhood when this was going on. He moved, it, when, when he lived in the suburbs, every year he would organize around Christmas time a toy drive. And the churches would do this, and then families would do this, and they'd bring those presents into the inner city and give them out to families. Well, then Bob moved into the inner city and his first year there, he happened to be in the house of one of these families that was receiving the gifts. And what he noticed was when the family came in, everybody was smiles and happy, especially the kids, and the father sneaked out of the house. He was ashamed that he could not provide for his children and that these folks had to come in and do it. And Bob decided then and there that he was going to do something different. He already had a used clothing store that, that, that he'd started. And now he, at Christmas time, instead of these churches and these families buying presents that they would wrap up and bring down and give to individual families, 
they would buy the toys and they would contribute them to the family store, the name of the thrift store they had there, and families could come in and buy the toys themselves at a greatly reduced price, and if they didn't have the money, they could work in order to purchase the toys. The first name of this was Dignity for Dads. But then I think he decided that was a little too racist, so he changed it to Pride for Parents. Wonderful, wonderful program. Uh, seen it in action, it's great. The second one I want to tell you about is the open table. And I remember hearing about this uh, up in Easton. This guy came out from, uh, I forget where he's from, Oklahoma or Arkansas or someplace out in that area or New Mexico. Anyway, he came, and he is the most unassuming guy you would ever want to think. You, th you look at him, and he's just plain. You, after it was over, you probably couldn't describe him. Uh, and he told the story that he was part of a church that would come into the city and they'd go to the rescue mission. And he was with the youth group and they'd set up a table. And on the table they would put water or fruit drinks or uh, a fruit or a little snack. And they'd sit, on, sit behind the table and as the people came out of the rescue center they would give them something to eat or something to drink. And one guy came out and walked around the table and came up to this man and said, can I come to your church? He didn't know what to do. Didn't know whether the church would want him to come or not. But he thought the guy probably wasn't serious, so he said, yeah, I'll come by here tomorrow morning at such and such a time and pick you up. And he came by, not expecting the guy to really be there, but he was. And I wish I could remember this part of the story because he had a cat with him and wanted to take the cat to the church with him. And I forget how he talked him out of not taking the cat, but it was humorous. But he started to build a relationship with this man. And he would come to church every week. And they created what they called the open table. And what the open table was, 12 other people, or 12 people, would meet with this one man several times a month. And they did it for like a year. Because if you and I suddenly found ourselves homeless or jobless or something, we would have resources and know how to... Uh, how to take care of ourselves, or where we could go and get help. But some people don't know that. And this organization that works with uh, people, foster children that are coming out of the uh, system. They're 18 years old, and all of a sudden they're on their own. What the heck do you do? They work with vets from the armed services. They work with... Uh, um, women that have been caught up in the sex trade. They work with, uh, with, with poor people. But they screen them. They screen them for people that really want to help themselves. 
And so they become part of this open table that have 12 other people, and they create this relationship with this one man, the, the first one. It started out he wanted to be a security guard. Well, they found him a job. And then they started to have great plans for his life that, oh, well, we've got connections. We can make it where you have your own security company. He said, I don't want that. I just want to be a security guard. That's all I want. So they had to back off. And you're dealing with what the, the person wants in their life. But you have the resources to help them to know how to get a driver's license or to set up a bank account or get a GED or find a job, keep a job. And you work with this people, this person uh, for a year. It's a great organization. And they do a lot of the work screening the person and then they give you the training on how to do it. Their webpage is on the bibliography. And then the last one I'm, part, I'm sure you're familiar with, Habitat for Humanity. I love Habitat. It is a Christian organization. But they will work with anybody that shares their vision of providing affordable, decent housing for everyone. If you share their vision, you can come and work alongside them. But they make no bones about it that they are a Christian organization. And they offer a hand up, not a handout. I don't know what's here in Jacksonville. I don't know what missions y'all are already doing. Maybe you're doing some of the things I've talked about that are helping people. You might be doing some of the things I've talked about that are hurting people. I don't know, so I don't know if I'm stepping on your toes or, uh, or patting you on the back. But I want to encourage you to do mission that is good. And that was where we get to that oath of compassionate service. This comes from Bob Lupton. It's an oath that I think every church should make when it comes to helping people. Never do for the poor what they have or could have the capacity to do for themselves. You degrade them when you do that. Limit one-way giving to emergency situations. Strive to empower the poor through employment, lending, and investing, using grants sparingly to reinforce achievements. Subordinate self-interest to the needs of those being served. This is a big one. Because when we help people, we feel good. Don't we? You feel good when you help somebody. <coughs> but we don't always recognize that what makes us feel good might not make the person we're helping feel good. Listen closely to those you seek to help, especially to what is not being said. Unspoken feelings may contain essential clues to effective service. And above all, do no harm. To help people that doesn't hurt people takes hard work. Because it takes building that relationship. It takes effort to make sure that the relationships aren't here. It takes a lot of work to ensure that. Because the people, <laughs> we shouldn't be comfortable here, but we are. And the people down here... To be honest, they understand that. They don't really understand this. 
where there's equality. They're not used to it. So it takes effort on both parts to make that happen, but it takes more effort for those up top. I don't know if y'all have a mission committee or how you do it, but if you have a mission committee, I would recommend that you start with one of these two books and talk about it. Talk about this oath of compassionate service. Are we doing this? Examine your church. Are you helping or hurting? Are you that New Testament church that I read about at the very beginning that was changing the world because they were in these terrible affected areas and they were loving the people that were there. And they were caring for the people that were there. They were, they were living out those verses that I read at the very beginning. It's easy to do emergency help and think that that's all that's out there. And to do emergency help even when emergency help is no longer needed. It's easy to do that and think you've done your great Christian duty and you feel good. It's a lot harder to live out the kingdom values and do, uh, do stuff that really helps and makes a difference. Any questions? How much stuff have I got? I got about four minutes. Okay. Okay, advocacy. Right. That is very true. And if they have a skill when they leave school, most they could probably get a job somewhere. Very true. We don't we don't we don't emphasize that as much, the technical schools as much as we used to. We think one size fits all to some degree. Other questions or comments? Yes. Right. I live in what my wife calls, uh, we're townsies in Ruralville. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, uh, and there is indeed a lot of poverty within rural areas. And uh, the community organization is a, little, is a little more challenging because people are spread out. But people that have common needs can get together. People that have common assets. When we build, actually when we build communities and do community developments, we really need to begin with their assets, not their deficiencies. Um, and that's where you start. Let's, what, what, what do we have that can change us, change our, our environment, our, our community? 
and start there and then um, and build from there. And then a lot of it is they have to decide what they want. Kind of like the, the man with the open tables. I want to be a security guy. I don't want to own a security company, you know. <laughs> That's more than what I want. I just want to be a security guard. I got a job. Puts a house over, a roof over my head. Any other questions? I got two minutes. I'm going to close in prayer. I see that. Let me, let me go to this one. He hasn't had a chance. People coming out of prison. That's tough. People don't want to hire folks coming out of prison. They don't trust them. Uh, this is where that open table can kind of come in. They work with folks coming out of prison, uh, where they, they, they try to help folks with that. But it is tough. And uh, ministry is tough, and it doesn't always have the answers and the, or easy answers. There's a lot of that gray area that I talked about earlier. And Joe's coming up here to rip the uh, microphone off of me. Let me close in prayer real quick, a real short prayer. Lord, help us to help people with our helping and not hurt. Let us do the hard work that that involves. Because Jesus did the hard work that we might be uh, your followers, your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. that does a very good job with that as far as I can tell is Fresh Ministries. Uh, uh, Dr. Robert Lee, former rector of this church uh, downtown, if you're interested in uh, helping with uh, small business incubators or um, mentoring high school students, anything like that, they would love uh, right. to do that. A any programs like that over at St. Mary's? We heard from Beth Schoflat, but do they have anything like that uh, particularly right now? Not yet. Not yet. But I really love that what you're talking about with... Um, the toys and, and a way to provide dignity. That, that's just a, that's really wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much, Dr. Right. Duke Dixon. Excellent. Thank you. I, I'm willing to stay and talk with folks if other people have questions or anything if, yeah. until they run us out of the building, and then we can talk outside. <laughs> Those, those newsletters are in the back on the table, right in the back on the table there.